0: Hey, this is the moment of Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, Dominique Wilkins and I recorded a podcast together a few days ago. Uh, it's awesome. It's coming up. You'll hear it. But when I saw what happened to him in Atlanta on Friday, I just felt like there's no way we could do this without giving him the chance to talk about it. And and uh, man, do you want to just walk us through what, what happened?
1: Well, you know, it was very unfortunate, Brian, you know. You know, I've been to a lot of restaurants in my in my life, great yes. restaurants around the world, and I've never experienced anything like that, especially in my city. Where you? Yeah, know. of course. <laughs> um, but is that very unfortunate? That's you know, going into a restaurant and getting sized up and looked up and down, and and then you know, after being asked, actually, let me let me back up a little bit. Before I asked them about sitting down and dining outside of their restaurant. Again, it was an eerie feeling. They just looked at me really funny up and down, my lady friend and I. Wow. And I remember asking myself, I would love to have reservations outside, you know, to have lunch. And they looked me up and down again. And they said, we don't have lunch reservations. Uh, we're booked. Now, there are about 10 empty tables outside. Wow. <laughs> okay. This is lunchtime around 1 o'clock. All these empty tables, and people are leaving too. And I said, well, you know, the seat's available. And she said, I'm looking at what you're wearing. You're wearing sweatpants. I'm like, come again? Now, I'm, best, I'm dressed better than half of the guys that's coming into this restaurant that day. Now, this is the kicker. And this is the reason why I said it felt racist to me. Yes. There were three white guys coming in with shorts, t-shirts, and sneakers on. They said, give me a minute. I'll seat you in a second.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry, Dominic.
1: And I'm like, okay. And then she said, we're trying to keep a level of uh, elegance in here. So we, we can't seat you. We, we, we're not going to seat you. So I walked out and my lady friend went back and said, now, what is your criteria of what somebody will be dressed like? Mr. Wilkins was not in track pants. He th- she said, matter of fact, he doesn't even own track pants. Wow. He said he was dressed elegant. He was just stylish. And you guys don't realize what, you, what you've just done. And she said, it's just really unfortunate. She walked away. And so... I just, man, you know, I went, you know, I went all day and, and I said, you know, I can't just let this go. You know, it just ate at me and ate at me and ate at me that someone would act that way. You know, and I can't even tell you the other things that I felt and the way they react. Even one of the, the waiters, there was a the guy. I walked out, he shrugged his shoulders and like, oh, well, you know, what can I do? It was that type of feeling. Oh, he felt guess,
0: powerless, you're saying. He felt powerless to help you. Right,
1: right. And, because he and, saw what he saw what was going on.
0: I mean, um, there are so many things that I, I think you should, if you want, talk about what you this is at Bibliocay. I don't I don't want to let them get away with not saying this is at Bibliocay in Atlanta. There's also a Okay, in New York. And yeah. you are like the mayor of Atlanta. You're like the most popular. I'm mean, just trying to think about it. It's like uh Jimmy Carter and and you and Bobby Kremens in Georgia, right? And and uh and and um and and the filmmakers name I'm just blanking on right now Tyler Perry uh and first of all for them not to know but I think it's more instructive that they didn't know and you got you got to see something
1: you know it, it's really bad because you know I think they use a lot of times they use the dress code to mask and hide their discrimination yes you know a lot of times but you know, they, they've given up a, a public apology, you know they are making some of the changes that I requested that they need to make as far as really educating training and really from a diversity, from a, a, uh, a equality, you know yes. standpoint that has to be done. because you know, these I don't really blame the young people that work there. I blame the people who teach the young people this sort of things because they didn't just, think of this stuff on their own, you know. It felt institutional. Time, but, but, so it felt
0: but, institutional to you. Yeah.
1: But at the same time, they're, they're adults and they know right from wrong. Yes. And so it, it felt to me, you know, look, I had a cross run in my yard before when I was in high school. Yes. Okay. So I know what it feels like, even though it wasn't that, it felt like it, you, you know what I'm saying? So, but you know, I, I, I'm really, I'm, glad that they are making some changes and hopefully they stick to some of these changes and really start to educate people on how to interact with their, their patrons. And, uh, you know, so I, 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 I may, I'm happy to see that, uh, that they are changing, you know, somewhat of their dress code and some of their policies. So that's a good thing, but hopefully we'll see if they stick to it, you know, because, it, you know, it, you can't, you, you just can't let stuff like this roll off your shoulders. You've got to hold people accountable for what they do because it wasn't about me. It was about the people who look like me. Yes. And so, you know, I I had a a, a white lady who sent me a message, a sweet message. It was really nice. And she said, we want to thank you for standing off, standing on the wall for people who can't stand for themselves. Yes. You're their voice. And so and I said, you know, we have a, a responsibility to hold people accountable when they do things that's not right. Because, you know, a lot of people spend their hard-earned money going to these establishments. I think you have, a, you have the responsibility to treat them patrons like you want to be treated. Yes. You know, because otherwise, why are, we, why are we coming to your establishment, patronizing your place, and we're not appreciated? You know, and I'm like, in, you know, in my city, you know, I said, first of all, no one should ever be treated like that. But I'm like, me? In this city? <laughs> well, that like shows,
0: that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like w- w- really? Well, that shows you how, how, how deep the racism went, right? Because they, they in fact, they to my way of seeing it, and obviously I know nothing about this compared to you, uh, but it, it seemed to me they couldn't even see you were Dominique Wilkins. All they saw was a black man standing there wanting to eat in their place, dressed in a way vape decided they didn't like.
1: Well, i tell you the, the manager, because we asked the manager, he never came out during the time I was standing there. So I left and then I see an interview. He, you know, after, you know, I kind of went public with this. He said the reason why they didn't let me in because of I had track pants on, but this is the kicker. The manager never showed up. He never saw me. I never saw him. So how do you know what I had on?
0: (laughs) <laughs> of course. What what made you? And then their bullshit excuse. If we let celebrities in, and then all those pictures. I saw. I will just say to people who didn't see the pictures, this restaurant lets people in in like um, uh, t-shirts without arms and baseball caps backwards. There's no chance this was about a dress code. I saw the pictures no, of people eating wasn't. there. This is stone cold racist action that uh, against Dominique. Dominique, what made you? Because you're so. You, you've always been such a force of positivity, and you say you know, you did tell the story later in the podcast about the cross burning, which happened when you decided not to play for North Carolina and and leave the state Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. that you were in at the time. Um, And obviously that was traumatic. And you're saying this had the effect of, and back then you were still, you didn't have money, you weren't successful, you weren't world famous. And this brought you right back to those feelings. That's the power of this kind of racist act.
1: Yeah, it brought me back to a feeling like, wow. You know, I, I almost feel like, and you know, That was only part of it because the sister restaurant next door to it, we went there afterwards and the manager came out and he said, "Miss Wilson, we can't set you in the main dining room. We can set you in this other room with a back room with a door. And it had, you know, a dining table, about six chairs in there. And he said, we can't sit you out in the main dining room because of, you know, you know, the way people dress, you know, so we can't put you in it. So we'll put you in this room now. Same time. I see people walking in with shorts, t-shirts and sneakers that wasn't looking like me, didn't look like me. And I remember me and my lady was sitting there and she was just mortified. And she said, baby, let's go. And I'm like, it's, it's not just Biblical, it's their sister restaurant that's next door to them too, you know, that we haven't talked about. So it's just blatant, uh, it was just blatant, you know, discrimination. It was. And, and, you know, people try to take the truth, flip it, twist it however they want instead of saying what it really is. It's the truth. You know, anybody who knows me, I don't get involved in controversial things. You know, right. I, I, I don't you know, because, you know, my, my name, reputation is everything. But this type of situation has to be talked about. And that's the only reason why I came out. Because because, again, it's not about, you know, disrespecting just Dominique. It's other people, too, who have been disrespected in these establishments. And I just think it needs to be be shed light, need to be shed on it. People need to be called out.
0: It's amazing to me and and, and a part of why this is so fucked up that you even had to hesitate before going public. This shouldn't be controversial, right, to say Mm -hmm. uh, we should be treated equally. So yeah. you really thought it through because you are, a fo- I mean, when, as people hear when they get deeper into the pod, you know, you, you're, a lot of people say they do charity work. I mean, you have lots of personal reasons and do so much work to help people. And-
1: It, it really did. It, you, you're right. It, it took me all day just about to to really digest this. And I like, you know, I, I'm not a crusader. I'm not a guy who's trying to look for attention and publicity. I said, but this this really was disappointing. And it hurt, you know? And so I said, you know, I got to say something. I said, I just got to say something, you know? I said, because I got to have a voice for people who don't have a voice, because there are situations before I came, talked about this, that they have problems at that restaurant. It was other, I mean, it was other problems.
0: You've heard that since? You mean, you've heard this since you've come? There was
1: a TV station at their restaurant a week before. Wow. For the same exact thing. You know, but again, you know, the fact that they're, you know, they're making changes and they're looking at their policies and and, and kind of revamping it, training their staff that definitely needs to be trained on how to interact with people. And so I'm happy to see that they're doing that, but
0: hopefully they'll stick to it. Their first reaction was not really an apology. Are you saying they've made a better
1: apology since then? Yes. Yes. Uh, Two apologies later.
0: <laughs> the you know? third, the third apology was the, the yes. third apology yeah. was the good one. Yeah. Finally, yeah, I think that
1: the second apology came in the form of their manager at that restaurant. You know, you know, saying they saw it. I don't mean, you know, to you know, treat Mr. Wilkins like that, but the reason why we didn't let him in because he had track pants on and he said, you know, as a celebrity, we can't, you know, if we look at just celebrity, what you just said that you know it would kind of discredit every everybody else who we.
0: Also, the lie of that is, and for people who don't know, here's the thing about the restaurant business. If they really knew it was Dominique, they would have seeded him uh, right away because the way the restaurant business works is you want, cele- oh, you want a celebrity in your restaurant dressed any way they can because it attracts other people to the restaurant. And the Bibliocare restaurants cater to very wealthy people. So you want very wealthy people eating in your, in your, in your restaurant. This, was, this is so clearly r- r- racially motivated. There's no question about it. You know, this is the most
1: diversity in America. Yes. And to have that type of mentality yes. um, is only going to get you in more trouble. And like I said, there are people who've had similar uh, incidents and uh, interactions with this restaurant that they talked about, but nobody, nobody really cared or they didn't listen. But I wanted to make sure that people knew what type of people yes. that they're dealing with. And then why would you spend your money in a place like that that you're not wanted, and so it, it was just very disappointing. It was very disappointing.
0: Nick, did you uh, did you anticipate how positively people would respond well, to you when man. you? I, I wonder if at least mm-hmm. that felt how like I I wondered if you've got the sense of how beloved you are when you saw the way well, people responded.
1: Well, one thing I have to say, I love the Atlanta fans. I love fans because you know we had fan. I had fans in other countries, yes. you know, commenting on this. So it shows you the level of love and respect they have for me. And I can't tell you how that feels. It's, it's just amazing. The people who... Were, I was remember yesterday, I went into Wells Fargo. Yes. And, um, and I, as I'm leaving, I had older women saying, thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate you. You know, they were giving me the thumbs up and... And for me, it it ain't about me having the accolades, but to hear that from people saying that we don't have a voice and we really appreciate you standing for us. And so that was a that was an amazing feeling, because sometimes, you know, if you're gonna make change, you know, you gotta shake a couple bad apples off the tree. Yeah, you know, if you're gonna make some change, but it's gonna take some time. But hopefully, this restaurant. Will learn from their major mistakes, and
0: not just this restaurant. The hope is that that um, all you know that anytime something like this is brought to light, that it'll prevent it happening somewhere else. Also, I think it's mm-hmm. incredibly brave because you are so mm-hmm. careful about what you say and how you comport yeah, exactly. yourself, exactly. and the fact that you were willing to go public tells me how bad yeah. it must have felt to you, and and how you must have it must have weighed on you all day.
1: And you know, if I didn't want to help in the in the situation of Of finding better solutions, how to interact with people. I never would suggest that they go through diversity training, uh, uh, equality training, all these different things to help them deal better with their patrons. So, you know, if they if they do that, that'll be a start. But they got a long way to go.
0: That 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 makes sense. We all have a long way to go. All of us have unconscious biases. All of us don't know the ways in which we react, and we react thoughtlessly and too quickly. And it's uh, great that you had the presence of mind also not to react and make a huge, I mean, I, I will tell you, I can't even imagine the way that uh, I would have wanted to feel in, in, in your shoes. And I'm sure you wanted to make a whole big thing out of it. And you waited and, I'm you know, you could have reacted many different ways. And instead, mm-hmm. of course, as you always are, you were a total gentleman. And even what you wrote was completely, you wrote I, for me anyway, I read it and I was like, I'm blown away. So as I always am by you, Dominic, just so impressed with the way you. Well, it's true. I mean, you just handled it better than I can even imagine. And once again, it's on you, right? Instead of them owning it and realizing their fuck up and dealing with it proactively, you called them out. But I got to say you called them out in in just such an elegant, classy, intelligent way. And thank you for that. And um, I'm glad people got to hear this uh, from you directly on here. So thanks for taking the time and people can reach yeah, out to Dominique on- online and, 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 and talk about it. And yeah.
1: real quick, I'll say before you go, you know, as I'm walking away, my, my girlfriend and I, we just felt like we had just raped or something. You know, it's weird I mean, because we were very quiet. We didn't talk to each other. Then we said, we can't, we can't let this go. What they did was wrong. I mean, we felt like some it, something was stolen from us. That's what we felt like. It was it was just a unbelievable feeling that I haven't had since I was in high school. And so uh, you know, and she was actually in tears. You know, and I, I think I was more pissed off about that, embarrassed about that, than even them not seating me. That's to see her with tears in her eyes, I'm like, wow, wow wow and so I said they're not gonna they're not gonna get away with that and so this is where we're at well,
0: thank you for doing that thank you for sharing that with me and with the audience so people understand how their actions have tremendous consequences I hope you feel that you reclaimed by doing what you did that whatever they stole from you in that moment you took back by at least going public
1: thank you man I appreciate it man thanks
0: appreciate Dominique always Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you would have told 17 or 18-year-old me that I'd be talking to Dominique Wilkins someday uh, and I would know the man, I would have not really believed you. But I'm so excited to talk to you, Nick. We, we referenced Dominique in season one of Billions and how much we you could tell from the reference that we were fans and we got in touch on social media. And then Dominique came into the cameo for us, and, and has a lot of the members of our cast actively support Dominique's charities, and and we're all um, interacting all the time. So and 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 look, Dominique, as a way of introduction, even though everyone knows who you are, I mean, you know, you're one of the greatest basketball players who ever lived, one of the top fifty. You are uh, a Hall of Famer. You are you led the league in scoring multiple times, multiple time All Star. Every kind of basketball award somebody could win, you win. You're also uh, a global citizen. You're uh, somebody who's made the world a better place and um, still involved with the Hawks. And I want to talk about a whole bunch of stuff with you. So thanks for being here, Dominique.
1: Hey, man, thank you. And the first I just want to say really thanks to you for having me on Billions. I felt like a movie star when I was on your show. (laughs) So it's one of my favorite shows to this day. So just want to thank you for having me on your show.
0: Uh we had the best time man you were great that was um that was a super fun way to introduce that character and of Mike Prince really and um getting to shoot hoops with you was amazing so here here's where I want to start and uh, because it was fun talking to you the day you were on set about the differences between the game the NBA game when when you were playing and now and and the differences how the players saw themselves but I want to back up even further and I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking that like you and your generation you you're like uh you're like a superhero to me but i think part of the reason yeah part of it is i was like a 17 year old kid or whatever but part of the reason i think and i want is that we saw you as like a finished product because it was before everybody's practice videos were everywhere before the internet so like do you think it was healthier to come up at a time where until you were a senior and in those national all-star games you were able to have a kind of anonymity. And, uh, like, do you think the kids today lose something by not being able to workshop and become who they are in in private?
1: I I think, to a certain extent, they do. I mean, we grew up in the era where, I mean, it was just truly hard work where guys really competed. They really uh, looked forward to playing against the greatest players. And for me, I just feel like in that era, it was the greatest ever because some of the greatest players that ever played this game every night played in the, in the 80s era. And it just helped shape you as a person as well as a player. So for me, it was, man, a, a darling time to be a part of the NBA.
0: And, and what about the, the before college, when you were in, in high school, can you talk about one thing that like, yeah, some documentaries talk about it, but mm-hmm. how like there was no coaching. Like I'm thinking about now the way all the top kids get this like personalized coaching uh, from all sorts of like tutors and advisors and people.
1: Oh, watch man. Oh, it's so much. I think it's too much. It's overkill. You know, I mean, you got guys have four or five trainers. Right. You know, I had one guy who works, you know, all the time. And usually, we worked out with ourselves. You know, guys, you know, we made a commitment to we meet a gym this day. We're going to meet another gym this day. And that's the only way you can get better as a basketball player. You got to play the game, play the game, play the game. You know, you can do all the weights and stuff in the world.
0: But if you don't play the game to get better at different aspects of the game, how can you get better? And was that like Was that like a real conscious, like at what age do you think, do you remember, like at what age did you think to yourself, I can get great at this? Like I can actually, I could maybe be a pro. Like when did you start thinking about that?
1: Well, you know, actually I started to think about that. Oh man. Believe it or not. When I was 12 years old. Really? And I'll tell you why I say that. I say that because. I remember coming home one day, coming home with a friend of mine. My mom sitting on the steps. She's crying. And I said, Mom, why are you crying? She said, well, we don't have anything to eat today. Oh, man. And I said, you know what? Stop crying. One day I'll make you rich and you'll never have to wait or, you know, feel sorry or anything like that because you'll never be hungry again. I remember saying that. And I worked from the time I was 12 to the time when I was 18. I bought my mom my first home. And out of all the things I've accomplished in my life, that's the thing I'm most proud of. That's the thing I'm most proud of.
0: Because my mom raised eight kids. Oh. Eight kids. Where, were you, where, did, where did you fit in in the eight?
1: I, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and I was next to the oldest. I had a sister uh, a year older than me. But I've been a man in the house since I was 12 years old. I've taken care of my family. Believe it or not, Brian, over forty years.
0: Right, over that's unbelievable.
1: Years. Yeah, and so you know, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a it's been a long road, but road has been hard in the beginning, but you know it 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 was worth it because it helped build character in me, helped build respect and appreciation. So,
0: did it you know, feel like a a burden to you at the time, or it felt like an like a, you were honored to try to do it?
1: I felt like it was my responsibility, it was my duty and to take care of my family because I saw how my mom worked so hard to take care of us. Oh and I remember telling my mom one day, as you know, as I grew as a man, I said, You've worked hard your whole adult life to take care of us. Now it's my turn. I said, you live out the rest of your life and you relax. Let me carry that burden now. So yeah, I was honored to carry that burden.
0: And what kind of work? Did, so you decided twelve. I mean, that is an incredible sort of level of commitment and dedication. And and that's exactly what I'm talking about. That people don't understand about the kind of work it takes. And so you decided then I'm going to be a professional ball player.
1: I knew at twelve. I, I, I'm going to tell you something else that happened to me at twelve. Yes. I remember a playground legend. In in Baltimore, where I grew up, he said, "I want you to come to the boys club every day." For some reason, he saw something in me, and he said, "I'm gonna teach you the game, and I'm gonna teach you the right way." He said, "You're gonna owe me," and that twelve, I didn't know what that meant. Sure. He said, the "Only thing I want from you is to give to someone else when I'm about to give to you."
0: Really? And,
1: yeah. And um, I remember for about a year going and working out that place for him. He taught me so much. And he gave me the courage to leave home when I was 16. I left home on a Greyhound bus when I was 16 and moved to North Carolina. And I got discovered on the playground the next morning because I saw some kids playing basketball. And I went out and started playing with them.
0: What do you mean you got discovered? Well,
1: when I got off the bus, I saw some kids playing basketball. So I went over and started playing with them. Yes. But after I finished playing, I'm sitting on the ground. This older gentleman comes. He said, hey, son, you live here? I said, I'm not sure yet. Right. And He looked at me. He said, uh, well, where are you going when we leave here? I said, I'm not sure yet. And he said, come go with me. And I don't know why I went with him at that time. He took me to his house. He showed me a bedroom. He showed me a kitchen. He said, you can have all this. The only trade-off is you got to play for my high school team. He was a high school coach. And that team went 76-1 and in three years in the state of North Carolina, which to this day has never been uh, any record better?
0: What made it you one of pick... the most
1: celebrated ones in history?
0: That's incredible. What made you pick North Carolina when you got on the bus? What was your plan? Well, my mom and my fa- uh,
1: father's family was from North Carolina, but I had no idea where I was going to live. I didn't live with them. I lived with my high school coach.
0: Wait, did you go who... there because you thought you would um, then be in state to go to one of the Carolina colleges? Well, I told my
1: mom I, told my mom I was leaving to go to North Carolina. And she said, how are you going to go? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to go. And I had one bag when I left and I knew I probably couldn't stay with my mom's family. I couldn't stay with my dad's family. Um, so I was trying to figure it out on the fly. And by the grace of God, you know, I met the high school coach the day I got there.
0: And by that time when you were 16 were you already really dominant player did you were you dominating at your home high school in Baltimore already were well,
1: you you, never, you won't believe this when I was 16 I was the only one in the neighborhood who could dunk 11 and a half foot goal Right It's at, 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 they said oh he can't do it he's too small it's too small it, it, And you know the funny thing is you know when you watch my documentary, you take all those people who witness it who want who was around during that time to validate all the stuff I'm telling you because a lot of stuff was hard to believe. Well, you know, I remember I when you came you know, into the it. league,
0: though. I mean, I I I I really remember the way you played, so I completely believe what you're saying. But was uh were you not getting scouted uh in the high school you were in? Was it not a big enough high school oh, oh, or something? Yeah,
1: yeah. no, I mean, I was, again growing up on you know in Baltimore playing playground basketball, everybody played playground basketball. But when I went to North Carolina, I got recruited, you know, after my first season. Right. I got yeah. recruited by every school in school in America. <laughs> you know, I mean, because yes. that's how good we were, and that's how determined I was to play the game. And so, I mean, if you know my story, you know, and back then, if you are a great player in the State of North Carolina, yes. you don't leave yeah. the ACC.
0: Right. No. It of was course. Just
1: it a lot it. And I was the first one to kind of buck the system. And I right. went to the University of Georgia, and all hell broke loose. They went from loving me to hating me. I remember I remember being in my house. And by this time, I was getting death threats. Why? Uh, because I made the
0: decision. Because you weren't going to go to UNC or St- NC State or something? Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. And so I had originally signed 11-10 with NC State. Right. So when I decided to go to Georgia, they poured paint on my mom's car. Bus windows out to our house. I got all F's on my transcript, and I had a cross burning in my front yard.
0: Every part of that sends a chill through me. And you're just a kid too. You're a 17-year-old, yeah. 18-year-old kid. You know, I remember being very
1: frightened when I saw that. But I went to be from being very frightened to very angry. Right. And of I just wanted when I saw that, I just wanted to fight somebody. <laughs> you know, I want I mean, I was just that angry. That they could do that to me, for what I did to that that town brought them back-to-back state titles, and that's that's how they repaid me by trying to destroy me.
0: Wait, they really fucked up your transcript like that? They really put yeah. Fs on because your transcript? Of my,
1: because of my cousin was a principal in the school, he got my grades right. You know, so. And I was, I was your, coach, it, and was your was coach was your coach
0: mad at you, or was your coach understanding the guy you lived with? My my,
1: my, my coach actually loved me like a like a son. You know, I was like a son to him, you know, and the only thing I regret that I didn't go back to see him. Because when I left Norway, they ran us out of the city at night at 12 o'clock, my whole family. I didn't go back for 30 years. Wow. really? I didn't go back to my hometown for 30 years.
0: Did you never play NC State when you were at Georgia? You must have played them. No.
1: Well, when I left Georgia, went to the pros. My college team played in the Final Four against North Carolina State the very next year.
0: Right now, yeah, but not in not in North Carolina. I can't believe you you were away for for that for that many years. That's that's nuts. When uh, how much younger than you is Gerald?
1: Gerald is. How much younger, Gerald? I mean, there's eight of us. You know, you lose track of everybody. But how many know. behind
0: you? How many kids behind you was he? He's
1: here? about, see, let's see, one, two, about
0: four. And uh, so you were the example for, for him of what was possible. Yeah,
1: you know, I, you know, I think, you know, my brothers saw what I did, and they wanted to basically follow in my footsteps. And all of them did that Gerald was the only one who actually played in the NBA. The other two said, hey, we got two brothers in the NBA, so, I, you know, i you know, I'm good. You know, they regret it now, but, but you know, it kind of helped start and build a legacy with my family. My my oldest son played professional ball over in Europe. My youngest son is the one. He's six, he's um, 14 and he's six, seven.
0: How, how do you, okay, this is a question I'm always fascinated by. Successful, so, you know, your story is one of like uh, this incredible hunger and this incredible desire to serve your family and your hunger and anger and made you able to have this work ethic, which I want to talk more about the kind of work you put in, but your son's the son of a rich and famous man. And it's much harder when you're the son of a rich and famous, it's easier, life's easier, but it's much harder to be hungry when you're the son of a rich and famous
1: man. Yes. yes. Like my oldest son, he didn't realize it till later in life, you know, what it meant to have a, you know, a father like myself, who's willing to try to give every type of advantage to sure. him. Sure, yes. So he didn't embrace it right, or right away. My youngest son, different, because, you know, the youngest son always trying to be better than the older son. Sure. And he is as hungry as you can get as a young man. Because he told me one day after you watched my documentary, I remember him saying this. He said, you know something, Dad? And he paused and he said, I'm going to be better than you. Wow. And I said, I said, son, as a father, that's my hopes and dreams. I said, but I gotta tell you something. I said, we were some son of a you you, you probably you you probably know exactly what I said to him. I said, but I said, but you have a chance. If you have as good, you have a chance to make more money than I ever made. Right. Of course. Yes. I said, you living in that time where, you know, you guys become multi, instant multi, multi millionaire. You know, I said, so you got to embrace it, take advantage of an opportunity, son. And if this is something you really love, you got to put in the work. I said, because I put in the work. I said, I always believed that I had to be better than the next guy to be successful. And I remember family members used to tell me that I would never be anything. This is when I was very young. I would never be able to go to college, play ball. And uh, I remember telling them, I said, I may not make it but I'm gonna die trying I said so I'm willing to put in the work and I did so when when I went to high school it went from you know I'm saying negative stuff saying oh that's my nephew oh of course you know know, (laughs) of course that's my friend that's my blood yeah that's my blood but my thing was this never tell people I told you so you let your talent you let your success speak for you you don't have to say a word
0: yeah uh, that's, yeah, that, it's funny, right? Michael Michael has a different attitude about it, as we saw in his Hall of Fame speech versus yours. But, yeah. uh, right, everyone has a different way of looking at it. Yeah. When you say putting in the work, though, can you talk a little bit about, so you would play everyday basketball in games, How'd you do things like work on your handle or work on your moves? Like, I don't think people understand the amount of time. Can you just talk about the amount of like thinking of what you want to do, noticing the stuff you need to get better at? How did that Mm -hmm. happen before there was all that coaching?
1: I'll tell you, Brian, I, when I was younger, I played basketball every day, all day. Sometimes my mom, you know, was wondering where I was at, but she got to the point where she knew after a while. That, right. Oh, I know what Dominique is. He's on the basketball court with his friends playing. I would be there sometimes at 12 at night playing basketball.
0: Game after game after game, after game, game after, after game.
1: after game after game. And I've always been a guy who was very competitive. I played yeah. the game at one speed, and that was all out. And I'll yes. tell you one of the unique things, that I, what I thought was unique, that I did. When I was trying to get better as a player, I took a great player and took one thing that he did great. And I practiced it over and over and over again. So it became my move, like Earl the Pearl spin move. Yes, he had the greatest yes. spin move in the history of the game. He's my favorite player.
0: Who, he's my favorite player who ever lived. Earl is yeah, my hey, favorite hey, player who ever lived. Earl the yeah.
1: Monroe was something. And so I copied that move till it became my move. I watched how the great runners the next year how the great runners run the lane, where they got their shots. And I practiced that over and over, you know, how guys would post up. I would take different, uh, tips from different guys or my high school coach. So basically what I was doing is building the arsenal where one guy was never going to be able to guard. And that was just the way I thought that was my mentality. The problem with kids today is they work on too many things at one time. So how can you perfect one?
0: So you, you, would take, you would take one, you'd go work on it like, by yourself under a basket, and then you would bring it right, right into a game. Once you had yes. it, you would start throwing it in a game.
1: Yeah, and, and I would do it in 2-on-2, 3-on-3, 4-on-4 during the summer. And I'm like, wow, this is just feels natural. Right. But in today's game, nobody except for the elite guys actually work on the small little aspects of the game. This is, I'm fascinated work. by Both this, them. yes. Yeah, mid-range, which they try to discredit the mid-range now. But now it's coming back because they see how prevalent it is. So I worked on every aspect of the game. You know, I worked on rebounding. I know I worked on how I need to guard a certain guy, you know, because, you know, we have flaws in our game. When yeah, we of burst, course. You know, as we grow. But the only way you can measure your greatness is you got to play against the greatest.
0: Yes. And we'll get to that because I know that that's an issue you have with some of the NBA, the way the NBA works now. But Mm -hmm. but a lot of people think. It's all about just uh, talent alone, and uh, they don't really understand how much thought and just effort to realize that talent, because, yeah, you were I mean, when you were in the NBA, you were one of the five most talented guys for sure. In terms of just physical gifts, but I—I I mean, it seems to me just from the little time we spent together that your competitiveness and your work ethic are what you think mattered more than your innate gifts.
1: Well, I, I competed everything, and my son he gets on me all the time. "To daddy, why you never let me win?" I say, "You're never gonna beat me till you beat me either. I'm too old, or you're too good." And but that was how I grew up. That's how I looked at myself as if. If I put it this way, if I wanted to be uh, successful in life, I have to be willing to work harder than the other, other guy because I know he's good, but how can I get to his level? It's the little things. And one of the things that I always tell uh, young guys yes. is become more fundamentally sound and you know, learn how to play the game on the ground as well as in the air. Because if you play the game on the ground, playing the game in the air, it's easy. And if you happen to be a guy who's gifted and can do both, it's a blessing. But it just helps shape me. my mentality, helps shape me as a person by doing the little things. And and, 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 and then the, the, today, today's young guys, the first thing they do is they dunk the ball or yeah. shoot a three. And a lot of times they miss the in-between game that helps them develop their game to a level where when you're not shooting the ball well, when you're not making the threes, you have that in-between, mid-range, off the post, off the dribble game that helps you maintain your level of play.
0: Well, related to that, do you think that um, the way that you would... I mean, I was really thinking about the fact... I think you missed Pete Maravich by one year. I think Pete left by one year. But you played against the greatest scorers of all time up until Steph. And I mean, you did play against, it seems to me, like you played against Larry and uh, you played against uh, Gervin and David Thompson. Like you played against monsters, right? Like the Jordan, uh, you, 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 Malone. You make, great, you make a great point. I mean, there was
1: some freak athletes, yes. freak players, I mean, every single night. And people don't realize how I know. rough and physical and talented the league was in them days. Hey, you wasn't getting free lunches back then, I mean, then, imagine,
0: <laughs> I just think about, imagine someone trying to get to the lane on Artis Gilmore today. First of all, all those big guys yes. in those days challenged shots. Right. They would go. They, they
1: were trying. Hey, look, you didn't get many. We, most teams in the NBA had a no layup rule. Right. You say if he does come to the lane, make him go to the free throw line. He don't get free layups. He just didn't get them. You just yeah, didn't. I mean, after... And I tell you too, you talked about Pete Maravich. When I was in college, my last years in college, Pete Maravich used to come and train me and work wow. out with me. I mean, he took a he took a liking to me, and he got me ready for the pros. And then I had Maurice Lucas,
0: the great right. enforcer, of course,
1: of course, yeah, who helped me with the toughness. So when I went
0: to the NBA, I was like, man, this is easy. You know, I, I, mean, I got to ask you some Pete Maravich questions because he's so fascinating to me. When you were alone in the gym with that guy. If that guy played, this is the question. Like, you know, if you remember at the time, he was a very controversial figure. Like a lot of NBA purists hated him, right? They would Mm -hmm. choose Paul Westfall over him or some shit. But Mm -hmm. uh, I always feel like if he got to play in an era that allowed for that kind of free expression with the three-point line, I feel like he would have been considered one of the
1: baddest. They'd have outlawed him. Right. (laughs) I mean where uh, area where you can't touch him and the freedom of movement that's
0: what i'm asking
1: <laughs> i mean i mean you look at you know a guy like myself and even though jordan scored a ton a ton of points if we had the freedom of movement where you can't touch us and we love physical contact right i can't tell you what we've scored <laughs> today
0: well but it's funny that every generation i was watching a Will chamberlain interview and he was talking about jordan and he was saying. You know, uh, we wouldn't have let Mike do, in in our day, we wouldn't have let Mike do what he did. And then you guys talk about, well, we wouldn't let Steph. But then you guys are like, we wouldn't let Steph do what, uh, you know, we wouldn't let these young guys do what they do. So it seems like each of these generations feels like the new generation has it a little bit softer with the rules and stuff.
1: Well, well, you know, back in those days, you know, any guard, it didn't matter if it was Steph or Isaiah, they would say, look, don't bring it down the lane. Right. Don't bring that stuff down because them big guys took it personal. If you tried to show them up and embarrass them, they took it personal. You know, yes. so it didn't. Wes matter and, them.
0: Yeah, Wes unseld would send you into the Wes they Unseld listen, wasn't kidding around.
1: When Michael and myself included first came to the league, you know, Michael first year, man, they were taking them out of the air. I mean, right. they would I mean, if you watch the last dance, yeah. That's how every all all the teams play. All the teams played that way. And so when you play in there, you go back to unsale and Chamberlain, nobody got layups on Chamberlain. Nobody. And I don't think people realize what Chamberlain really did. He's still over 60, owns over 60, 70 NBA records to this
0: day. You no, know, when I think about the teams, when I think about like the Bullets in the generation before, or the, or the you know, um, when they uh, first changed names, but when they were the uh, Washington Bullets first. When I think about Elvin Hayes and Wes on the same team and people don't understand how ridiculous it was and they don't, you know, it's a weird thing to me to watch these players all be kind of like, like when when Hayes died, like like, like kind of washed away. But I, what I remember, the, the eyesight test is, you know, that guy Elvin Hayes was like you, as good you, as you could be. You know what the people base it on now. They
1: base it on numbers and they don't base it on just if you're talented basketball players, you know, they were talented basketball players. Forget about athletes. They were talented basketball players that brought value to their teams to win. Yes. I mean, you got the household names, man, that they don't even talk about today because I think a lot of times they think, you know, league started, you know, 20 years ago or something, you know, yeah. but, you know, I don't take anything from anybody because, you know, everybody has, you know, their time to do what they do. But I just hate when they discredit our era. Yeah, And me you too. see it time and time again. And you know, and to, if you really go back and educate yourself and look at what a lot of these guys done.
0: Well, yeah, I try to put, put in my, my rate, head. I try to put George Gervin or you in today's game, and I like those are two players that I think would be dominant in today's game. You could,
1: first of all, you couldn't guard George Gervin. Right. You couldn't guard the Ice Man.
0: I don't care what anybody.
1: You could not guard the Ice Man. No way. I mean, I've seen a lot of beautiful scores. You know, LeBron, Michael. I mean, you go down the line. I've never seen anybody score the way the Iceman scored. No, and I know. And the way he scored. I mean, it was a beautiful... I saw him get 54 in the second half of a game because the guy <laughs> pissed them off.
0: Right. You know, And, a, and without the game. condition... I mean, I like to think about it, too, is that your era did not really know about physiology the way that they know about the body now. Right. So guys, I was thinking, like, you know, guys were smoking cigarettes at halftime sometimes. back Cigarette
1: then. and drinking beer at halftime. Right. We had the cooler, you know, and I came in the NBA. I'm like, <laughs> they can drink beer. Right. I'm like, are you real? And so it, that was a, a man. We had a guy that at halftime before he go into the meeting, he's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. A, but you know what they were? They were hard core man yeah they were you, hardcore those guys I was, they were yeah, hard i mean guys like bob lanier you know guys like robert paris i mean you know they would them old cats were old school hard knock guys you
0: know? yeah i mean that's I mean, not marvin to mention marvin that's not to mention marvin barnes and you know oh,
1: oh I mean, hey listen listen <laughs> when you talk about tough guys
0: oh forget about it i mean no kids don't know about marvin barnes but I, let I me ask you a question into, I if won't you wouldn't
1: were... even going i want go to go comparing who's the toughest because if i start he would he would have a lot of guys shaking in their boots
0: well yeah i was thinking about all that controversy when who was it um double zero had the gun in the locker room and i was like Marvin Barnes, you probably, every shoe he took off probably had a fucking pistol in it. Oh, you know? yeah. You know, and, you know, one thing
1: you couldn't do, I remember, I forget who it was, uh, who wanted to go in the locker room, was in L.A. Man, let me tell you something. If a guy would have come over to our locker room, yeah. we'd have opened the door and let him in and locked the door behind him. Oh, from another <laughs>
0: team. You mean if a guy from another team tried yes. to show up in your locker room? Yeah, well, that, that yeah.
1: would never happen. Never you had,
0: happened. Now, someone like that though, like like if you had to play against a guy who was real tough, you know, real tough, like you know, Tree Rollins, Marvin Barnes, one of those guys, would you? Uh, you'd go at them hard, but would there be some respect where you just wouldn't try to humiliate them?
1: Always respect. Always respect. And the thing is, they don't mind you playing hard and doing your thing, but they didn't want you to embarrass them. I've seen Tree Rollins punch, <laughs> slap a lot of guys. Because they tried to disrespect him. That's what I'm asking you. Marvin Barnes. Marvin Barnes. If you had any sense in your in your in your head, you didn't disrespect him. If you had any sense, right? Because that was a
0: bad dude. There's no taking the ball by him and slapping him on the ass and saying "nice try" to Marvin Barnes. No,
1: no, 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 no. If you do that, you ask him to go to the hospital.
0: Yeah, to the hospital. But that's the reason I'm bringing it up is like, you said this to me. Um, when we were hanging out that day and you said that it bothered you or you felt like the guys, you almost said like you felt like the guys were depriving themselves of what it felt like to go against some motherfucker that you hated on the court. And like that these rivalries against the best players, you felt it made you like grow, made you
1: better. as a It made you grow. It made you more aware and you had to be focused. And prime example, Bernard King and Larry Bird. Oh, my yes. god! These guys, first of all, never shake your hand.
0: Never shake your they hand. Either would, one of those guys. They, right. would,
1: they would look at you like you stole something from them. They They wouldn't speak to you. Right. And if you weren't ready to play, you got embarrassed. Right. Period. And so they, yeah. you had to be willing or able to match their will.
0: And if you couldn't match their will, and you'd have had a long night. Did you figure that out like your... So were there some games like rookie season where where those guys pulled your shorts, basically, where you were like, oh, shit, I went out last night because I'm in Boston or whatever, and...
1: Listen, I figured it out <laughs> after my first probably 15 games.
0: What happened, yeah.
1: One game, I played Dr. J. Oh. Larry Bird is 6'10". Worthy is 6'10". Cummings at 6'10". I had to go through Larry Nash, Marcus Johnson, yeah, okay, Mark Aguire, yeah.
0: Yeah. you know, Orlando Woolridge, I
1: remember you know, every one of
0: them. Yeah, of course. Every
1: single night. And all them guys getting 24, 25 a night plus, you know. Bernard King, you know. I mean, it it was insane the guys that I had to guard. And but I quickly learned that I know they, you know, want me to worry about them. But I'm gonna make them start worrying about me too. So right. it was a mutual.
0: Well, like that respect. first game where you lit up Larry Bird, and then you earned his respect and stuff. That's you know. Uh... Man, let me tell
1: you, Larry Bird kicked my ass the first game because you know he wanted to show the Rook, hey, you know this is a man's league, right. and he was talking to me why he kicked my ass. You know, I love that. But that's the only game he ever talked trash to me because he respected me because he knew that I was gonna keep coming. And right. so we built a mutual respect, even though we never shook hands or we never talked, we respected each other. And, to the, you know, Larry and I has talked about that a couple of times. And really is one of the coolest guys that you want to meet. You know, he's a quiet, laid-back guy. But Larry is a real cool guy, man. I, I enjoy having conversations with Larry.
0: Well, and do you think that that's – I mean, I've been th- this, I was thinking about this this morning when I was thinking about what I want to talk to you about. It's like um, it, it seems to me like because you guys all competed so hard – That Then when later you could become friends with them, it meant something because you'd like put in all this sweat against each other. Whereas now everybody is so friendly and they're all in each other's business all day long. Whereas you guys, it seemed like when you finally could come together and have a beer because it was 10 years in and it was like, all right, I imagine it was like, man, it's good to sit with you.
1: Most most of the guys that I competed against, we never talked to each other. We never. never shook hands. Outside of Clyde Drexler, he and I were very close friends. And and we would go out to dinner after we played. But nobody else I did that with. Because I didn't want anybody that I played against to get that close to me. And neither did they. But the, the, the biggest satisfaction that all of us get the fact that when we all meet together, be it an All-Star weekend or at the Hall of Fame, yes. and all yes. the old guys sit down and talk, and the conversations, man, are amazing. Like Carl Malone and I, my whole career, we, never talked to, we didn't talk to each other for over 25 years until one All-Star game, and I cracked a stupid-ass joke, and he said, Nick. I didn't know you was that funny. I said, yeah, we thought you was that. Ah. <laughs> so, it broke the ice. Ah. Ah. so it broke the ice and we, we laughed about it. And now we are like brothers. Oh, I mean, but best. cause we, we enjoyed the stories, you know, we look forward to that. And so we have built kind of a family atmosphere with, between me, him and Clyde Drexler. And so, um, I enjoy the times I get to spend with those guys.
0: Yeah. It, and it is, uh, Man, just thinking about the way he and Stockton were able to do what they did together for so long and that is so rare now where these two guys can stay together for that long and do the thing. I mean, do you feel these guys are depriving themselves of something by by becoming I mean, I imagine I imagine part of you is very proud of the players taking the league and making it their league, but I imagine yeah, part yeah. of you feels but I imagine part of you feels like when you make yourself the general manager, maybe you're depriving yourself of the ability to know you defeated everybody on the hardest terms possible.
1: Well, one thing I will say, and I'm really proud of these guys today because they have taken their own destiny to their, to their hands, you know, and and they have every right to. We didn't have those rights and uh, and, of and opportunities to do those things. So hey, man, I, I applaud these guys for doing. that. That had nothing to do with competing. You know, that's, that's, that's everything to do with taking care of their life, their family, their destiny. And basketball is a part of that. Playing the game is a part of that. And so, you know, for what these guys have created, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I just like to see basketball as a whole compete more against one another on, 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 a, on a very professional level. That's why I like that. And, and, and that, look, people can say what they want about LeBron, but one thing I would tell you about him: he makes no excuses. He takes no games off. Yes. He he yes. just comes and plays and kicks your ass. Period.
0: Oh, oh yeah, I think he's no. I I do think he's probably the second best player who ever. Li- I do think he's he and I would put Kareem up there too with Jordan and him. But I do think he's. As good as there's ever been, other well, than Mike. Well, I well, think well, it, it, right. Yeah, you
1: got a you got a group of guys, you got a group of guys at the top. You know, I don't get to compare who's the greatest this, that, that. But when you got guys who approach a game like LeBron, yes, and played the game the way he's played it for 17 years, and still like he's gotten better up until his injury, you gotta put that guy in a conversation with the greatest to ever play, because he is. He is. I agree, yes. That's why I respect him and enjoy watching him play because of the way he is and the way he approached the game. Man, he's one of those guys that really, truly loves to play the game of basketball.
0: Yeah, you can feel that. And I, yeah, a friend of mine who plays in a league was talking about someone else and uh, I'll tell you off the mic, but he was saying the sad thing about that guy is he doesn't love to play and he was like, He's a great player. He's one of the best at his position, but he doesn't love it. And my friend was saying it's really sad to be out on the court with somebody and realize that guy's doing it for all the wrong reasons, whereas LeBron's doing it for all the right reasons, clearly. he loves. That's why he wins.
1: That's why he wins. That's why he wins. Hmm. And what LeBron gets out of his teammates is respect because they know he's going to bring it. They know he's going to bring it. And if you get yourself in position to – fall in line with the way he likes to play, you're going to be successful too, because he makes you better.
0: Does it bother you uh, when you see the league and know the way you conducted yourself at All-Star Weekend? When, you know, I remember the dunk contest that and, and look, I, there's no bigger Michael Jordan fan than me in the world. I just think the world of Michael Jordan. But you beat him in that dunk competition. There's, there's, no, just fight. there's no doubt you beat him in that dunk competition. But the main thing is, you don't have to speak to it, but the main thing is, you guys really, really competed with each other. We both wanted to win.
1: We both wanted to know who the best was. And this is the thing I will tell you about that contest. No matter who won, the yeah. fans got their money's worth. And so, yeah, I thought I, won. He thought I won. He thought he won. But at the end of the day, it don't matter because the fans got what they came to see. Two great players going head to head.
0: But part of that was that even on All-Star Games back then, you guys seemed like you wanted to... Like, it seemed like the chip on your shoulder, all of you, was still so great to win that... Even on an All Star game, you couldn't kind of take it off. No,
1: our All Star games, guys play. I mean, guys play. They competed in the All Star game. You know, uh, it was no just you get score, I score. It was none of that. I mean, the East wanted to know who the best. The West wanted to know who the best. Yes. So you know, we competed. Plus, you know, back then, you know, we were trying. <laughs> everybody wanted that the the first place money. Sure. Yeah. Well, I was gonna, <laughs> and the scoring
0: title and like so. The scoring yeah. title mattered too. I was thinking about like James Harden and uh, and Russ, and I was and I, and sometimes it feels to me like I remember that you got disrespected sometimes, Dominique, because people would say, "Well, he's just oh, a lot scorer. of time." And and how personally did you take all that?
1: I took it very personal because they really didn't know me as a player. I right. never had a big three to play with, and we still went to the playoffs, you know, every year. Right. Unfortunately, the East was loaded.
0: Oh my god! But if you
1: look at the Eastern Conference team, they have multiple great players on those teams. And so people don't really know what I did and the level I did. There's a lot of great players who play today who are great scores, right? But are their teams winning? Have they been to the playoffs? You know, you know, it, it just it just it just kills me when they say, Oh, that's the score. You know, what I tell people, I say, you know it's it's very difficult to score with 26,000 points on dunks. Yes. <laughs> I said, I was a creative score, you know, and I said, I played on some very good teams. It wasn't just me. I just didn't have another go-to guy or two offensively that can take the, some of the weight off. Do what I would like to kind of given some of that score scoring to someone else on the team. Absolutely. I would have, you know, cause that would have taken a lot of pressure off me. If I could have delegated some of that, scoring to other guys, but we just didn't have that offensively. Now, defensively, we were good. Right. We were very
0: good. You were tough, of course. Did, when you look at a guy like Harden getting tagged with just a scorer thing, do you think that that's uh, fair or do you do you have sympathy for that because it's like the same thing they were well, saying to well, you? Well,
1: well, I think it's unfair because he's still, you know, he's getting, at nights he's getting 12, 13, 14 assists. Yes. So a guy who just scores you know, they're not getting that kind of assist. But more importantly, when you don't win at all, you always get a label. You always get a tag, you know. I mean, you look at other great players who have won a championship. Barkley. Of course. Paul Malone, Stockton, Ewing. Would that that that, that diminish their greatness?
0: No. You Steve know, Na- I mean, Steve to, Nash. Such, Steve Nash, too.
1: Yeah, Steve Nash. But, you know, it's just one team every year going to win. <laughs> 13. Yes. One's going to win. They're fortunate to win because things went their way. They stayed healthy, and they is the right time.
0: Yeah, I mean, even Doc, who I'm a big Doc fan, even Doc did have on his team Moses Malone, and uh, you know Andrew Tony, Mo Cheeks, and Mo Cheeks Andrew, Andrew Tony, and it was uh, like
1: uh, Carlwell Jones. He had he had some players now. Bobby they had
0: Jones. yeah, of course Doug, Doug Collins at the time. They had really good players on that team who could, uh, you know pick up the load when Doc needed someone to pick up the load. and
1: No, and, no question. No and so question. I
0: wonder about that. I, I want to talk about just a couple other things before we let you go here. Uh, just a few. How, like, like you're so um, still active in the world, Dominique. And, mm. you know, you're beloved in Atlanta. You're still the most popular person ever put on the uniform. You're, I think, even the, whatever the criticisms that some people had when you played about being a scorer, in a way now, Everybody knows you're one of the greatest who ever lived. It's not even a conversation or a question. It's just assumed uh, the time has done that for you. And the fact that we can still now, you know, you didn't have that in your day. Uh, I could only watch you in your day once or twice a week. You know, if I was lucky enough, you were at a Sunday right. game, right? I mean, otherwise I couldn't watch you. Mm-hmm. Now, or I go to the, you know, I would go to the Knicks to see you uh, and I would see you play against uh, the Knicks. But now people can go on YouTube and they can watch and see how great you were. But I want to understand the second part of your life, which is that you're a successful business person. You know, they always talk about athletes who weren't able to keep it together. You've kept it together, raised your kids. you, You sort of were able to keep your promise to your family. And as you say, take care of all these people for 40 years. But I you know, you also have a child with physical challenges. And I'm I I, yes. I know that's so yeah. important to you. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected your worldview and your new, you know, the sense of mission you have in the world?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, that little girl is, is everything to me. She is my heart because, you know, she's been brought into this world and she didn't ask for a lot of things that she's she's dealing with. Right. And so I see how tough and how strong she is. And many days, you know, I say to myself, I said, why am I complaining about anything? And I can see her go through some of the toughest, you know, obstacles and changes in her life. And it never makes her sad. And Mm -hmm. so I don't, I try not to get stressed out about things too much because, you know, when you deal with situations like that, you have that in your family, it changes your, the way you think. You know, and because you know, if you're a, if, if you're a selfish person, having someone in your family like that would quickly change your mind and change your life. You know, it's because because it just shows you you don't have problems. And so, so many people. You know what the thing is, and one of the things we've done with Culture City is that we have come up with you know a slogan that no one or no person is invisible, and so we got to look at. People who are dealing with these sensory needs, special needs, autism—you know their lives matter too. And so, who's going to stand on the wall for them? Who's going to speak for them? Well, it's going to be us. You know, it's a long road, and I say this all the time: it's a long road, but it's a road we all willing in the And so, I'm very passionate about that. I'm passionate about healthcare. Period. So, we we do a
0: lot in the healthcare space. Culture City with a K, right? So explain Culture what Culture City with a K. Get, just explain to the people listening so that they can get involved if they want to. Because I, I do know it's not just words for you. I know how important it is. So take take a second yeah. and explain it.
1: Well, what culture say First of all, it's a sensory inclusive organization, charity that deals with people who are dealing with sensory needs. And basically, you know, we train, we have professional uh, train, f- person, professionally trained people who teach and train people how to deal with people with sensory needs. Because a lot of times when you know, people get in trouble who have sensory needs. People don't even know they're artistic or they are having those sensory needs. So being a sensory inclusive organization, this is one of the things that we're trying to shed a lot of light on. So we have sensory rooms, uh, maybe se- over 700 sensory rooms around the United States on Connell car- inclusive NBA arenas, uh, NFL arenas, uh, uh, you know, all over the country where we teach people how to deal with the, the, these type of needs, you know, we had a situation where we, first of all, we trained the police department, first upon responders in Salt Lake City on how to deal with a lot of these issues. A uh, month after this training, it was a kid who came to the police station in Salt Lake and he wanted the police officer to kill her.
0: Mm.
1: Well, because of this training, the police said, look, let's lower the lights. Put the lights at his feet. Let's bring down, de escalate the temperature. And so, once they did that, it took them about 30 minutes and they got the the guy on the ground with no fuss. Nobody got shot. Nobody got killed. Instead of taking the police station, they took him to a hospital because they identified that he had some sensory needs. So, we know our work is working. And so, the sensory needs um, that we deal with with people also we look at. All the other um, hidden illnesses and problems that they may have with diabetes, hypertension, those sort of things, spinal bifida. And so we are a, a, a full-service organization that try to caters to people's needs when they're trying to learn about autism. And
0: so if you put Culture City in, K-U-L-T-U-R-E, Culture City, um, and uh, some great people are involved. Kelly O'Coin from my show does stuff. Jason Isbell, my buddy, who I... Uh, when you did that challenge to me, I think I challenged Jason, and now didn't Jason just came uh, aboard on the board with you, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, involved. he did. So yes, he did. It's really fantastic mm-hmm. and a really important charity. I yeah.
1: tell you something, too, before you go to your last question I've never been with an organization that cared more and had done more than Culture City as far as people's needs and education and opportunity. Even helping getting people jobs. I've never been a part of an organization like that.
0: So, people step up and and support Culture City. All right, two more, two last things. One is uh, so that's one of your children we talked about that uh, your basketball playing son, you said you'd never let him beat you. Has he still never beaten you in one on one?
1: No, sir. And I'm going to tell you why he's never beat me now. I
0: quit. That's what I was going to ask you. Did you stop?
1: <laughs> I quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He moved to. He moved around too much for me. I can't. I can't do anything with him. Now. Can he shoot? But, what about
0: but- uh, horse? Can he take in horse? Yeah, probably can. I mean,
1: as far as shooting, well, you know, depending on no, my. That's learn. a no.
0: I, to, I, I will say, I, I had this quick no, thing where Dominique and I played a probably quick game, not. and and he, I, I, I will say, I saw how competitive you are. I'm not going to be talking about it. I saw what you. Yeah. I saw that right. you do not like to yeah. lose. Uh, it's not fun for you to lose. You will do anything but, you can to then win. Well,
1: my youngest son, my youngest son, gonna be a special. I mean, my oldest son played over professional ball over in Europe. What's your get ready going? He's ready to go ready going to coaching. Oh, and so um, I'm really proud of him, and my youngest son is going to be special. I mean, he's 14, and he's, he's he's about six seven. What's his name? Jacob Dominique.
0: So people can look for Jacob Dominique Wilkins. And the last thing, Nick, what? How do you mostly spend your day? What's what is the day to day life of uh, Dominique Wilkins look like now? How do well, you mostly spend your time?
1: Well, when I'm not working, you know, on air, uh, you know, in my own business stuff. I'm sitting out in the backyard smoking a cigar. (laughs) That's what I, that's what I'm doing, man. You know, that's my, that's my downtime and just relax. Just come down off of a a long day or just, you know, when I'm, you know, not doing anything, that's my time to relax.
0: And do you play tennis or golf? What do you play to, to, if you want to play sports, what do you play to relax? Golf.
1: (laughs) Uh, golf. I play golf, especially when the weather changes. I play golf. And then, you know, I hang out here with my kids and those three things. That's, All right. Well,
0: we'll get out on the golf course together and smoke a cigar together. Dominique Wilkins, thank you so much for doing this. Um, You're a great example of... Honestly, man, what a story, like, for whatever any of us want to fucking complain about. I mean, when you think about what you did, the promise you made to your mother, and the fact that you achieved it, and then your brother also achieved it. You know, not quite the heights that you did, but your brother you know, mm-hmm. also made it in a big way. And yeah, uh, yeah. it's an amazing thing. You changed your family's whole direction.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know what? And it had to start somewhere. And, you know, I, I I think God put me in that place to 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 start a vision and start an opportunity and a legacy for my family. And so now it's trickling down to our kids. And I have another nephew who's going to be a hell of a football player. He's, he's six, seven, 300-some pounds. So... You know, and so we just try to keep the legacy going.
0: I love it. Well, thanks. People can find Dominique is on Twitter and he will engage and have fun on there. So you can find Dominique on there and, uh, support culture city. All right, man. Thanks so much. Be hey, well. Take care you, of yourself. Brian. Okay, everybody. So that was the, the podcast, but at the end of Nick and me talking about, um, the heavy events, because, uh, we're buds. We started talking basketball. So, uh, I want to leave you with us talking about uh, because I don't want them to take, uh, you know, this whole conversation as Dominique said, he felt like it stole something from him. And normally what he and I would be bullshitting about is the NBA. So here's, here's just two guys talking about uh, the basketball game, which I do want to at least uh, put out here to hear Dominique's thoughts about uh, Trey young and about the way fan interactions uh, can make a basketball player feel something. So here, listen to that, and that'll be the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. If I could just switch gears for one second, so that's the important thing. Dude, I was in the building uh, the other night, and Trey Young is such a bad and hard motherfucker, man. I yeah, couldn't hey, believe what trade. he did.
1: Tell
0: I couldn't believe what he did to us. It hurt. It hurt so bad.
1: Yeah, he, he, he's, a gamer. he's a gamer. You know what the thing is special about Trey Young is that now here's a, a a little guy with unbelievable huh. talent and, and swagger, but he has no fear. He loves and lives for the moment, and I can't tell you how how crazy it was when we were calling the game and this little guy just took his team, put them on his shoulders, and he took them to the to the finish line. But you know what? I was I mean I'm looking at New York and the way the Hawks played as a team. Yes, they took them out of their comfort zone. You yeah. I mean you look at the way Julius Randle played, man, they took them out of their comfort zone. Well, and so they they couldn't seem to make any changes to get them back on track. Even though they had a chance to win, they had a chance to win but it was a Trey Young show.
0: I'll say, Julia, i will going to say two things. And the reason I would look, uh, the thing is we can't let these motherfuckers who were mean to Dominique win. And normally, if I got Nick here, we would have to talk about this. So I'm just going to talk about right. it for one second because we right. can't, you know, they can't define us. But I was sitting there. My son got me t- us tickets and we're sitting there. And when the fuck you Trey Young chant started, I turned to Sam, my son, and I said, this is a mistake. Do not rile this kid up. This is a mistake. And, and I it was no surprise to me that he did that to us. And, yeah, I, but I think Julius – I'll tell you this. I loved how Julius Randle owned it. You know, after the game, he said, it's on me. I think he's going to come up huge tomorrow night.
1: Well, you know, a big – you know, a star player always finds a way, you know. And, you know, he'll find a way to play better. There's no question about that. And so we can't assume that we can have two, two bad games. But, you know, the thing about a lot of times the fans <laughs> – and it's an old saying, never – Awaken a sleeping giant. Uh,
0: I I have a. (laughs) Oh, oh, you have to someday. You got to introduce me to Pip, and I'll tell you this, then we'll end this. We're done. I made, I learned this lesson. The reason I knew people should not say uh, fuck you to Trey Young is the Bulls were playing the Knicks in the playoffs one year. I was up close, and it was after the headache game, and I said to Scotty, oh, do you have a migraine tonight? I was in my 20s to my own defense. Like I was like 25. And I said, "Like you got a migraine tonight, Scotty? And he turned to me and he said, watch what I'm going to do. And he went for about 35 from that moment on. And every time he scored, he just looked right at me. And I cost the Knicks the game. So I learned that lesson as like a 25-year-old and, and, and guy. And, I,
1: and I've seen it many times. I've seen it many times as a, as a player, you know, where... You know, I'm having an OK game. And then, it, and then a fan says something that pisses me off. I said, you know what? I can't do nothing to you, but I'm going to take it out on him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, listen, Dominique Wilkins, uh, again, I really think what you did is heroic. I, I know you did it and I, with a lot of thought. And I think saying what you said and, and shedding light, it's always scary to shed light on something because it brings attention to you.